Welcome to the Entmoot Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kenny Tallarico. I'm here with Sam Lieberman. Sam, how you doing? I'm good. Good. Very busy, but good. Right now, we're going to continue our discussion from last time on Charles W. Mills' uh, essay, The Wretched of Middle-Earth. Uh, this is broadly a discussion of Tolkien's treatment of race and what it has to tell us about Tolkien's view uh, of race in the real world. We wanted to start with a big point that Mills makes in this paper that we didn't really get to last time, and that is this discussion of how, because orcs are sort of racialized and stereotyped as being uh, fundamentally different from the protagonists, like men and hobbits and and elves. And his argument is sort of that they are othered in a capacity similar to how uh, victims of European colonialism were uh, othered in in the real world uh, during modernity. Mills is essentially arguing that by using that framework uh, to start, you can justify doing anything to the orcs, including what happens at the end of the, the narrative, which is essentially a genocide of the orcs. But, but of course, the, the, the genocide at the end of the story is... Uh, celebrated, right? It's a it's a happy ending essentially because the hobbits and 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 uh, our protagonists uh, save Middle Earth. I want to touch again on something we talked about last time, which is this sort of like not quite race science, but sort of race sciency um, element to a lot of this, and I think that it, that it sets it up pretty well. On page twenty two, Mills compares the view of orcs to the white European view of, um, broadly speaking, people of color in North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and Asia uh, coming into Europe, theoretically, and outnumbering uh, white Europeans suddenly um, with the view of the men of Gondor. In the Two Towers, Faramir warns, the enemy increases as we decrease. We are a failing people, a springless autumn. Childless lords sit, sat in aged halls musing on heraldry. It's a very common reactionary tactic to say that we're decadent and decaying while the enemy will quickly outnumber us. Similarly, uh, much in the same way that in, in the real world, racists of the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries are terrified of race mixing. Mills puts a lot into describing how uh, half-orc, or as they're sometimes called, half-goblin men, are described very negatively. So it sets up this sort of white European idea of a both a literal invasion in the sort of uh, view he talked, we, we discussed in the last episode of the Crusades, and also a more subtle invasion, this sort of racist notion that uh, race mixing will overtake us and birth rates will overtake us. So then with this being the framework that the Gondorians and the quote-unquote good peoples of Middle-earth, and, you know, they are, are, are the good guys in the story, use, it then allows Tolkien to deprive the orcs of a history, to other them in a similar capacity to how what Europeans othered and dehumanized what would later be known as, broadly speaking, the third world, you know, places that were colonized. So not quite the third world, really, but you get what I'm saying. Totally. Um, I'm just going to read this section. Uh, This is on page 24. Quote, For the genocide of the orcs is, of course, part of the climactic victory over Sauron and Mordor. Yet if it were to be suggested to the average reader of the book that it ends with a great crime, the claim would probably be met with complete bewilderment. The killing of the orcs generates no moral concern, either for the allies or the vast majority of readers and critics, because, of course, the orcs have been successfully depersonized by Tolkien, rendered as ontological zeros. The pen here prepares the way for the sword. Indeed, a case could be made that Lord of the Rings should be required reading for courses in the literature of genocide, for precisely because of the celebrated, quote, reality, unquote, of Middle-earth, it becomes possible to watch, in synoptic overview, the construction of an epistemology that makes mass murder possible. He continues, How has this been done? To begin with, there is the denial of history and geographical rootedness to the orcs, almost, one could say, the denial of time and space. The density of detail and cross-referencing which gives Middle-earth its solidity and reality are deliberately withheld from the orcs in keeping with their ontological shallowness. 
Certainly, there are no genealogical tables, no accounts of culture and history, no etymological speculations about their languages, no maps of their territory. The orcs are defined simply by negation, as the antipode to white culture and civilization. The natural response here, for a lot of people, I think, you know, fans of Tolkien, and this was sort of my instinctive response, was, well... The orcs are, are fictional. They're bad guys in the type that don't exist in real world. They're basically created by the Dark Lord explicitly to be evil. I think the problem with that line of reasoning is Mills has already established, as we went over in the last episode, how the orcs are explicitly supposed to be reminiscent of, broadly speaking, people of color. Tolkien himself says that their appearance is supposed to be similar to Mongols, the, the, who are, you know, in, in his words, the, the least attractive or the most repulsive to the, to the European eye. So the idea that they're just, you know, if those details weren't there, and if they were described as just sort of like evil blobs or ghosts or something, or just like normal looking little goblins, as he sort of describes them in The Hobbit, which Mills gets into, I don't think this would be so problematic. But because Mills has already established quite persuasively that the orcs are supposed to be reminiscent of people of color and the struggles between them and the Gondorians and the elves, broadly speaking, the hobbits to a much lesser extent, and the dwarves also, are so reminiscent of, of both colonial struggles and even more so sort of the Crusades, it really takes away from the case that these are just bad guys. And also, as he points out, he provided detailed histories and genealogies and maps, as we've gone over in other episodes, and as I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, for the elves and the humans and uh, the dwarves. Although he doesn't do that as much for the hobbits, there's still a detailed account of their society. This is not the case for the orcs. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was I was reading that, and I had a similar first uh reaction, which I, I want to dig into a little bit. But yeah, I think uh, the argument that basically the first step in dehumanizing, uh, I, of course, I mean, the orcs are not human, but if you're making this argument as it applies to uh, colonialism and imperialism, the first step to justifying uh, colonizing uh, or the end point of it is attempting to exterminate or completely subjugate a people is to deprive them of a history, deprive them of a language, deprive them of all the things that uh, make people people. What I always think of is like the way that Americans generally and the American public at large, our conception still of uh, of Native Americans. All of the indigenous American uh, nations were were just that. There's no fundamental difference between those and the uh, the European societies. But I think that that doesn't that just we are so programmed to uh, assign a sort of hierarchy of well, this society is better because X Y Z, which very very easily will take you down the path to, well, the people in the quote-unquote lesser society just matter less. And they're not, even if you don't say they're not fully people, uh, it sort of gives you license to treat them as not fully people. And and Mills, Mills continues on with this exact sort of idea. Similarly, in the maps of Middle-earth, Rune and Harad, which are where the Southrons and the Easterlings are from, the sort of dehumanized, evil, quote-unquote, men who serve Sauron, are not depicted as having internal features, cities, capitals, civilizations, but are merely spatial locations. In the Eurocentric geographies of early colonialism, these empty spaces signified the unknown. But Tolkien, as an omniscient sub-creator, cannot plead such ignorance. And I'm going to jump off that for a second and say this means either that he's saying these places don't have any culture of their own, which can't be the case, because in the sort of uh, clearly... Uh, racist depictions of them as basically South Asians he uses, riding elephants and having golden earrings, they do have cultural details, or it alternatively means that he thinks that these details just aren't worth providing. And given the racial overtones of all of this, there's some difficulties there. I mean, I would definitely argue that uh, Tolkien's view would have been the latter, that it's like... I think so too. Yeah, which I mean, I think is also... 
I think that is also the view, would have been the view sort of of generally like pro-imperialist uh, Europeans. Basically, it's like not, I mean, I think some we over We overstate, I think, the extent to which all of these imperialists in the 19th and 20th centuries just didn't know, or even older, you know, as back far back as the 16th century, didn't know about what was out there and understate the extent to which they were sort of knowingly writing out history in the pursuit of colonial goals. I mean, a lot of the imperial administrators of India who helped commit the worst of the atrocities um, were extremely aware, not all of them, but some of them are extremely aware of, you know, uh, South Asian history. Uh, some of them could even speak South Asian languages. You can even make similar arguments with uh, the war on terror um, about uh, American military leaders or PMC guys who committed atrocities. Half these dudes speak Arabic, you know? So there's some some real commonalities there. I also just want to quickly say that when I say members of the military, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not talking about your average boots on the ground soldier who was just there. This is not that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the war on terror though to to draw that parallel because I mean, if we're talking about right the 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 uh, people members of the government and high ups in the higher ups in the military who actually uh carried out okayed and and oversaw and in some cases committed the atrocities we're talking about, right, of course, they are, you know, generally cosmopolitan uh, elites who, like you're saying, speak, a lot of them speak Arabic and stuff and are extremely well-educated on the on the cultures here. But I would like to consider for a second, think of how the American public generally conceived of the war on terror and uh, of the civilizations that uh, in Iraq and and uh, in Afghanistan, uh, I don't think that you can say the same thing. I, I mean, I even remember as a kid, like the total dehumanization of gen- people generally from the Middle East. Of course, there's no distinction for a lot of Americans between people from Iraq or. Syria or Saudi Arabia or Egypt, like these very, very different Or if you asked, you know, know, let alone the percentage of people who can place any of these, you know, locations on a map, even fairly educated people or people who are interested in this stuff to a limited extent, oftentimes uh, think that Afghanistan is, is, you know, culturally similar to, um, you know, Saudi Arabia. I mean, the idea that, you know, Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq all speak uh, different languages uh, largely and have uh, very different cultures and histories. I mean, the crazy thing to me is that, and I'm going to get sidetracked for a second, the Iran-Iraq war was one of the largest conflicts of the 20th century. The United States financed that, that lasted into the 80s, and I, there was like no cultural memory of that uh, really outside of the region, I don't think at least. I mean, no, I, I totally agree. There is also, I would argue, very little cultural memory of the war on terror in the U.S. Yeah, remarkably little. It's crazy. It's also crazy the revisionist history on this, how like basically every politician from, not every, but like most politicians from most side of the aisle are like, this was terrible. And then you look at the actual like Senate and House votes for most of this stuff and it's, wow. <laughs> Yeah, the Iraq War was a little bit more contentious. It was, uh, and but like, yeah, it the, still had like seventy percent support from the American people, though. Oh yeah, absolutely. The yeah, approval that, rating for it was insane. That's exactly the the point I'm making, though. I think going back to the uh, the process of of dehumanizing um, and othering another group of people. That's not to say that before the efforts of the government at that time and to, to make the Iraqis sort of not deserving of the same dignity that, that others are. Uh, that's not to say that before then that Americans were, you know, perfectly well-versed on the different cultures of the Middle East or whatever. But like, still, I think that this, the, what we're talking about here, the othering and, and racializing and dehumanizing is something that happens from people who quote unquote know better and are sort of, you know, foisting that, uh, that view on the public generally. And that's how, that's how you get broad support for committing atrocities, essentially. All of that is to say ignorance is not 
the proper uh, is not the proper way to view what is happening when you're denying a a people a culture and a history and a, and a language of their own, like um, what Mills is uh, claiming that Tolkien is doing with the Easterlings and the South Runs, and what I think we both agree is what Tolkien is doing. Um, I think that what is much more uh, applicable is the idea that Tolkien knows that the Easterlings and the South Runs have a history and language and culture, most likely several histories and languages and cultures, uh, but basically that they're just not worth talking about, like, because they are somehow lesser. They're, uh, they're less sort of dignified. They have less of a, you know, storied history than, than the people of Gondor and of, uh, right. And it's this, uh, I mean, it's a very sort of conservative traditional idea that it's like some societies are just better than others, uh, and that, you know, the ones that we should be talking about are the ones that have the best, uh, have the best morals and have the, these, you know, long bloodlines that go way back. Like the Gondorans are, or the Gondorians are one of the best, even though like Sam, just like you mentioned, they are sort of portrayed as this, uh, decaying civilization, just like conservatives describe every civilization, basically. Including, including their own, oftentimes. <laughs> That's usually the one that is the most decaying. Yes. I want to quickly discuss despite the stated intention that this is a a history of the real world at at some point in the distant past i think that there is some reason to say you know this is a fantasy story and i'm not completely convinced of the argument that it would be useful to human quote unquote humanize orcs for example there's not I don't, as far as I know, there's not really any indication that orcs have free will. I mean, I guess they're sentient, but like, I don't think that they, for example, would have the capacity to be uh, like saved with a capital S. Uh, and that's sort of the the way that I can say, well, maybe this is a story that is representative of a sort of triumph over something or other, right? The, the the evil of Sauron and everything. Uh, and the orcs are sort of a a narrative tool that allow you to get to that end. But I mean, I I don't know. I mean I think that there I think that there is perhaps something to think about there. And uh if you also consider that the orcs are just truly like pawns of Sauron and, and Saruman who control them and who the orcs are terrified of uh, I, I don't know that they really sort of have like a quote-unquote culture or anything. But that is also, of course, the the counterpoint to that is, I mean, you can, I'm sure, imagine what it would be that it's like, well, this is a story from the point of view of Tolkien and from the, the West of Middle-earth. So whether or not the orcs actually have a culture or anything is irrelevant because the m- men of the West have a vested interest in making it appear that they don't. I still, I think, have a little bit of skepticism there about the idea of the entire exercise, how useful it is uh, to begin with. Honestly, given just how he links it to um, race, I'd say, or, or, or the racial description of the orcs, as I said earlier, that that's really what lends his arc, his arguments merit. I'll just say quickly that Tolkien openly had stated, right, that the orcs... Uh, look kind of like Mongols and that there's the, the South Rons and Easterlings are very clearly Africans and South Asians. Th- this may be too credulous of, of me, um, but this is all kind of like a narrative thing that I would imagine tons of British authors, unfortunately, were did of just like, oh, we got to make people exotic. So we got to make them from another part of the world. So we're going to, you know, give them these characteristics that are like obviously very racist and offensive, but we're like very much part of the sort of British conception of itself. I, I don't know how, again, I don't know how useful that is, uh, but I, I do think that maybe that's something to consider as well. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a decent point. Uh, one one argument he makes or, or point he makes about how 
the the orcs are dehumanized are how no one in middle earth questions the defeat of or, or they're, they're basically their complete genocide or how the the armies of the southrons and the easterlings are treated and then he talks about how the men of rohan and all around the misty mountains how everyone is celebrating one of the things that happens and this is on the bottom of page 22 and beginning of page 23. Significantly, the eventual defeat of the black racial danger posed by Sauron and the orcs is symbolized both by the fact that the Shire children born in the Victoria, victorious year 1420 have, quote, a rich golden hair that had before been rare among hobbits, what he calls a token of Aryanization, and by the long list of children Frodo foresee for Sam and Rose, the race had been saved. We're going to get more into the idea of the of, of the Aryanization and, and the treatment of Aryans, or, or sort of the Aryan theory of race, uh, uh, pretty soon in the podcast. I actually think that's the biggest thing Mills is wrong on. I don't think this is specifically sort of going to that sort of more Nazi Aryan theory of race, but it is just sort of gross and, and white supremacist, that a sign of how great things were after the defeat of Sauron, how, how monumentous this was, that was suddenly... All the hobbits born in the Shire had blonde hair, which almost never happens. This was the big victory because blonde hair is good. Yeah. Like that sucks. That's And then when you connect that back with how half orcs are talked about, were they included in the genocide? Um, it gets really rough with some of the genetic stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, uh, I totally agree. That was another thing that stuck out to me. That's like, how the hell did I not notice like the implications of this. And I think that there is a, just a deeply ingrained, and I think at some level, like just human that isn't cultural, is, isn't necessarily cultural notion of like light is good and the absence of light is bad. There's always a sort of a fine line between when you're talking about, for example, like the forces of good being the forces of light or something, right? I do think that like, some of the points that Mills makes in the paper where he's talking about, for example, like the Black Riders, the um, the Nazgul, uh, of sort of recognizing there that, yeah, well, black in that case just means, like, bad. It doesn't mean that they were, like, black people. Uh, in fact, they are sort of ethereal. They don't, like, have a skin color or pigmentation. Uh, they were presumably white uh, when they were alive. They were sort of these kings of men. But um, I think that there is in general maybe some utility in sometimes considering like is it racist for example to say like the black writers and that the implication is that they're bad i don't think in that case that it is i think that the implications of blondness uh appearing when the evil has been rooted out uh, i don't think there's any way to argue <laughs> that that isn't a uh a, 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 a like totally white supremacist uh framing uh i don't think it makes tolkien a nazi i think that it's i think he was a normal sort of british racist i i don't think he was a nazi yeah. in, in any capacity and and as i've argued as, as i sort of argued in the last episode i think his racism is really a sort of old a lot of it stems from a sort of older and early colonial i i think i i, I certainly don't think he went along with with the the aryan theory at no. all no i would imagine as like most people in Britain or in the U.S. were not. I don't think he was, like, a full, like, race scientist. I think that he just, I think that he shared the racial prejudices of the society that he was a product of, which, of course, were quite extreme racial prejudices, right? It's not, that's not to say that it's like, oh, he was just a regular guy. Like, he was a regular guy, probably, and the regular guy of Britain in the early 20th century was, like, completely fine with genocide generally i would think of the sort of colonized subjects of uh the british empire so it's like besides besides the 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 dissidents who who did exist absolutely yeah we should always we we should uh definitely it was not everyone and and it's it's although you know he was a part of a time of his time but it is also not a not a free pass a product of certainly like the sort of mainstream uh culture right and it's that i think that just because of his sort of disposition uh, and who he was as a person that I think that he probably wasn't super inclined to uh, examine certain parts of, uh, 
you know, what he felt as his Englishness that we might now look back on or and, and indeed people at the time saw as being, uh, you know, really, really very troublesome. Completely agreed. Something I always think about is that my dad talks about is how after I was born, everyone was like, wow, he has beautiful blue eyes. And how my dad is always like, that's that was sort of weird because they didn't say that about my sister. They didn't say, oh, she has beautiful brown eyes. There's like a real like internalized like blue eyes are good. You want to have blue eyes thing that goes on that people don't. I mean, maybe these days after the last, you know, two years, three years, people are more likely to like reflect on that and not do that. But at least, you know, 22 years ago, that that does not seem to have been the case. And I still think it's not really the case. I, and I, I do find that like super interesting, especially considering that like you are Jewish, right? That That's I, probably that my dad being also Jewish and like a historian of genocide is probably why he is more likely to notice this than most people. And getting on to what we've been hitting at the last two episodes, which is where I think Mills is the most incorrect, is where he links the elves to Aryans, both linguistically and, and culturally. So yeah, just as the orcs, the Southrons, and the Easterlings are portrayed uh, by Mills and arguably by Tolkien as being a uh, you know an underclass of uh, people who are not even necessarily of people, but of beings that need to be driven out or exterminated in the extreme cases. Elves are the flip side of that, uh, and in you know in 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 sort of Nazi theories of, uh, of race, right? That the Nazis are, or that the, the elves are just, are, are the Aryans essentially, that they are at the top of this hierarchy uh, and they have the, the culture and the language and, uh, and the history that are, uh, that, that ought to be what we are sort of preserving and of uh, structuring everything around. Yeah. So on page nine, Mills, uh, makes one good point and one really bad point on this racial hierarchy. The good point, he says, quote, correspondingly, the admixture of elvish blood has an uplifting effect on its recipients. Thus, Elrond of Rivendell, king to be Aragorn, and the prince of Dol Amroth are partly elvish, and this manifests in their greater nobility, courage, wisdom, ability to withstand temptation, etc. Throughout Lord of the Rings, blood, elvish at one end, orcish at the other, invariably tells. This is mostly a good point, I should say, not just a good point, because it is, I think, troublesome, the idea that, that you know, what blood you have uplifts you. I would also say that one difference between this and, like, sort of race science views, or even just racial purity views, uh, you know, of, of white Europeans, and actually a lot of cultures, um, what, one difference between this and that is that... Um, this includes, like, the Maiar, who are basically angels. So when, um, you know, Luthien would be an example of half-elf, half-Maiar, and she's elevated because she has basically higher levels of magic, um, although Tolkien wouldn't use that word. Like, elves have basically magical powers. Maiar have even more powerful magical powers, and that this is passed down through the line. Um and that even why, you know, so it still raises some issues when you compare it to some of the other things Mills talks about, but that's the one critique of it I would make. Um, but it's certainly something to grapple with. The point that I think he gets really wrong is when he says, quote, finally, the elves are also intrinsically and apparently unchangeably good. No bad elves appear in Lord of the Rings. This is a great example of, you know, and I don't blame him for this, but Mills clearly hasn't read the Silmarillion. He also doesn't claim to have done that, so there's no dishonesty there. Um, no elves committing bad actions occurs in Lord of the Rings. As uh, you know, any regular listeners or readers of the Silmarillion know, it certainly occurs in the Silmarillion. There's like <laughs> elvish war crimes committed in mass uh, or en masse, you know? The, the elves are not all good. Sam, I was just going to say, I, you continue in just a sec, but what's very funny is we have not talked about this yet, this, uh, this paragraph, and I highlighted the two sentences that you read, uh, and the first one, the uh, elves are intrinsically uh, and unchangeably good, I wrote, no, so wrong, 
in the, I wrote wrong. I wrote wrong. And yeah, in the end of that paragraph where he makes the first point that you read, where he says throughout Lord of the Rings, blood, Elvish at one and that, I wrote not totally wrong. So that's just very funny that we had literally the exact same uh, note and framing. Yeah, it's like um, the the elves. You know, again, they they are not intrinsically and unchangeably good. One of the reasons the elves are so good by the time we get to Lord of the Rings is because a lot of these elves we're talking about, and Galadriel would be a great example, is because they were locked in Middle-earth and prevented from returning uh, to Valinor by the, the Valar as punishment for, you know, going, you know, committing war crimes for the massacre of the Tellery. Um, so it's, it's not an intrinsic thing, goodness, at least they're, they're being more powerful is an intrinsic thing, but their goodness and morality is not an intrinsic thing. It's, it's a result of, you know, again, punishment for war crimes at this point, um, which is actually a pretty good message. I think I'm, I, I think it's, I think punishing people for war crimes is good. Yes. Generally. Yeah. Um, we could circle this back to the war on terror again. <laughs> uh, I think it it might actually be a really interesting sort of thought exercise and might actually help Mill's point if you consider the difference in how the narrative and characters within the narrative treat uh, groups of people after two different sort of forms of uh, of sort of mass killing. And that would be the the Noldor after the uh, the kinslaying against the Tellery, which we have not gotten to yet in our Silmarillion episodes, but we will soon. Uh, you compare that with the mass murder of the orcs in Lord of the Rings. Um, there might even be a uh, there might even be something to Mill's argument there, despite his not uh, not having been familiar with the Silmarillion. Uh, if you consider that the slaying of the Tellery is this, you know, they're dignified. They have a history. They're, they're other elves. It's this, it's this great, this great crime. Uh, but that of course the, the mass killing of the orcs is not, not viewed the same way. So I think maybe you could, there's also something there about how, um, when the sort of group that's viewed to be at the top of the hierarchy sort of splinters among itself in a sort of what, what the narrative would think of as being sort of a uh, uh, an unjustified way, then that is sort of a a great tragedy. Um, but when the sort of groups at the top uh, commit similar acts to a group at the bottom, uh, that's actually sort of a, a great victory for uh, you know for whatever for the West and for uh, for Western values or whatever. I, I don't know. I, I just thought of that. What do you, what do you think? I think that's a great point. That didn't even really occur to me, but that's a great point. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, like, I can't think of an example, I'm sure you might be able to, of, like, a civil war or something that, I, I don't know, was there any sort of in, like, for, I don't know, we can take the Nazis, for example. Was there anything, like, in Nazi history of them being like, that was dumb that we were fighting amongst ourselves. We should oh, have totally. yeah, fighting. Completely. We should have been fighting the real enemy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea that uh, one of the great, you know, during the Holy Roman Empire, all of these Germanic peoples or Germans were fighting each other rather than, than uniting as like a single Volk or Volk yeah, would, be, of course. would be the argument. That, that was a, you know, a, a key point. Of course, I don't know. I I have a feeling that if Mills had read the Silmarillion, he would have uh, he would have mentioned that. <laughs> I I do too. I do too. Uh, and I don't think it would have been necessarily a bad point. Um, I think that uh, you know there there might be something to that. Again, I feel like uh, I feel like we keep being like, here's all the ways that this kind of seems like Nazism. But Tolkien wasn't a Nazi. He wasn't uh, a Nazi. And we're about to get into the key reason why the Nazi hypothesis is wrong. Okay, yeah, please. Please take it away. I'm becoming despondent about the, the the theme of our podcast. Yeah, so the first thing would be that Tolkien, you know, explicitly stated that he hated the Nazis. But you could say, okay, it was subconscious. It, it wasn't. So on page 29, Mills gets into the argument that the elves are supposed to be like the Aryans or the Aryans because they are representative of... 
the original speakers of Indo-European languages in the way that the Aryan model of race identified um, the Indo-European speakers as uh, the elites, you might say, but what about the fact that in India they speak in, well, not all of India, but what about the fact that Hindi and Persian are Indo-European languages? Well, (laughs) the Aryans were people who were living in India. They certainly weren't white in the way we think of white people, but the Nazis took this view um, and ran with it to the extent that they rewrote the Aryan people who did exist as being uh, like ultra white and like blonde haired, which they were not. Yeah, which they were not. You know, they were like uh, Central Asian and Indian people. <laughs> so it's all absurd. It, it's like extremely stupid. Yeah, that is honestly like one of the great things to point out about like the sort of Nazi. Uh, like uh, sort of racial myth is that not only of course is it despicable and, and horrendous and evil it's also like at its core based on like just a stupid like misreading of like of like you know this this group this group of people that is like literally made up yeah that, like well yeah. The, no the aryans aren't made up no but, no no but the the nazi conception of them is oh they yeah were, completely that, made up like they might as well like they basically took they basically took the the name of a different group of people and were like no but that was actually this other group of people that we made up yeah, it, it, it's it's roughly comparable to if they said like, "Oh, Persians were actually like Scandinavians." Yeah, that uh, that is that's basically it. Yeah, especially because like you know Persian and like Hindi, like Indo-Aronic, like that's the that's the still the the uh, smaller um, umbrella if you're doing Indo-European linguistics that they'd fit under. But with that as the framework, um, Mills argues that. Uh, the Aryan elves bring with them to Middle-earth their ancient tongue, Quenya, together with its alphabet. Earlier in the essay at the beginning, he talks about how, uh, again, the, the elves are clearly based on the um, Aryans with a preference towards Indo-European language. However, the uh, elvish languages are explicitly based on non-Indo-European tongues. They're based on largely uh, Finnish and Welsh. Um they are explicitly not Indo-European. So th- that idea is just like patently false. Uh, there's a lot of Indo-European language elements in the sort of conlangs that Tolkien constructs. They are most absent from the languages of the elves, um, which are based on, you know, non-Indo-European language and and culture. Totally. I, and I mean, you know, to give Mills maybe a little bit of of credit, it's perhaps it's perhaps more relevant to say like, well, the elves, when they, when they come to, uh, when they come to middle earth, they are the sort of group that is providing the alphabet and the common tongue that eventually gets, you know, mutated and morphed into a bunch of different forms. And is sort of the, the language of record, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that regardless of its sort of real world roots, that, um, the, just the very fact of like, the historical uh, nature of, of how Quenya sort of uh, spreads, I think is reminiscent in is, is at least what Mills is arguing is reminiscent of uh, some Nazi racist theories of the same sort of thing. Yeah. I would, I would also respond to that by saying um, the elves are destined to leave middle earth and they do, and they're supposed to. Um, And, and at the end of the day, the big shift of Lord of the Rings versus the earlier work is that, uh, you know, men come out, and, and there's still issues there when you compare it to orcs and which men are those. They're the men of Gondor and Rohan and such, but it's men who come out as the, the real winners, and the elves recede. That was one of my big notes, actually, coming out of this, is that I think that the theory is, like, I think that Mills, in general, is making some very persuasive arguments. I think that the the essay in general is like it makes a very strong cohesive argument one thing that he mentions and just kind of like i think he mentions it like once and then doesn't come back to it is the idea that like the elves recede at the end of the story that the elves leave middle earth go back into the west and this might be a great 
uh, sort of last thing for us to talk about because I think this is a, a, a great open question for me. It was not addressed at all in the paper. Uh, is what does that mean? Like, what does that signify for this uh, this theory of of uh, the sort of racialist um, reading of Lord of the Rings? And I mean, my theory is that he Mills probably like didn't have a framework for how that applied, which is why he didn't talk about it. I'm assuming if he had an argument for it, right, that he would have addressed it but it's it, it goes unaddressed despite the fact that he's aware of it because he mentions it one time uh so i'm wondering do you have any thoughts there because like i couldn't come up with a reading of the elves sort of being destined to leave at the end and of leaving men in charge uh i don't know i couldn't really come up because i mean there's certainly no equivalent of that in like Nazi theories of the Aryans, right? No, no, are- there, there, there isn't, and I think this is the one of the essential reasons why I think Mills's arguments about race are really compelling uh, in a lot of ways, as we've gotten into about like maybe the genetics of the elves. If you want to use that word, I don't even know if Tolkien would have believed in genetics, but <laughs> that 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 sort of he probably didn't actually. Uh, but that sort of idea, and if you want to, and and then all the stuff about how the Southrons and the Easterlings and the Orcs are dehumanized and how they're described in racist capacities, the idea that the elves are like really white and better is compelling, but the idea that they're like Aryans or that there's in any capacity, the Aryan view of race. I just, I just don't think there's any real evidence for. Yeah. To, and to, to me, I, I do think that like the, the thing, the strongest thing for me that pulls me away from thinking that that theory is, uh, is, is credible is the, uh, is the fact of them leaving at the end. Totally. Um, are, I'm not able to come up with a way to make that, consonant with a sort of theory of the elves being the uh you know sort of a a racial uh like a racial superior in some way listeners if you know of any historical corollaries that would make the argument work we would love to hear them but i I can't think of any i'm open to being wrong on this It, it would just seem like it doesn't it doesn't quite square for everything I know about what we're, you know, what what Mills is arguing that Tolkien is sort of coming from the same, uh, you know, playbook as, I guess, is that it, if the elves were like the sort of superior, you know, race with the superior culture and all of that stuff, then the good ending would be the elves sort of establishing like a, you know, a global dominion, right? And of say, or, or of, of basically saying, okay, now all of the world is elvish culture uh, because elvish culture is the superior culture. And like, we're going to root out, you know, anyone who is insufficiently elvish, right? Uh, which of course is not what happens. And in, in fact, we, we talked about this in one of our first episodes, but, but in fact, I think that there's, uh, there's, there's a lot, to there's a lot to read in Lord of the Rings and in Tolkien's work generally that that you can very much read as a endorsement of a certain form of multiculturalism in that if not a multiculturalism then at least the idea that um there are lots of different societies that are not necessarily worse or better than one another of course that you know you might therefore you might end up be talking about, well, what he really means is like that, I don't know, uh, like the Netherlands is is like has the same, uh, you know, cultural legitimacy as like Spain or something, you know, and yeah. you're, you're still in Europe, right? That That might very well be what you're talking about, but I don't know that it's necessarily a good idea to say, well, that's horribly racist. We need to discard it. I mean, it is horribly racist. But I think that, you know, there might be some validity in, rather than discarding it, of extending it to its logical conclusion and of discarding the parts of this, what we're talking about, that are horribly racist, of depictions of the orcs and of the Southrons and the Easterlings, and of saying, like, well, we can get rid of that, but let's keep the message of all these different societies each having sort of merits, right? And of saying... Well, if that applies within this narrow group, why don't we expand that definition and make it, you know, 
make it work with our sort of modern, more liberal views of uh, uh, of how different societies and cultures relate to one another. I, I, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I actually think even more sort of relevant than the idea of just discarding those elements is that I think, you know, it's still obviously worth, worth reading the works of Tolkien, but I think Mills' essay is so great because when you can introspect about these, uh, you know, difficult to grapple with elements, um, it opens itself up to, to, to persuasive elements of critique, which are worth pursuing and, and fulfilling. I, you know, talking about Lord of the Rings and the War on Terror uh, what, isn't a thing that would have typically really occurred to me. Uh, at least not in the depth we've covered, or even the Crusades. But because of Mills' essay and some of the critiques of Tolkien, uh, I think we're both sort of making those links and that that makes the reading of the text uh, richer. I think that it, a lot of times critiques, um, you know, can make an experience more fulfilling and, and give you more to to sort of contemplate uh, with useful, you know, Tolkien was all about applications with useful applications to our own, you know, personal and, and public and political lives. Exactly. Yeah. And and this is, I mean, to, to really make a, uh, uh, to, to, I think, really draw a parallel here to, to another thing that I, I feel so pretty strongly about. It's um, the idea that, uh, I believe it's not only something that you can do, but it's something that you should make every effort to do. I mean, I guess the sort of dumb, idiomatic way of saying it would be to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And totally, uh, you and of basically saying like, well, there are things about either this work or this author or this person, this artist that are horrible and that we condemn. But that does not disqualify that person and that artist from having other things to say that we can apply as, even in some cases, as the antidote to the very sort of the reprehensible things that that person may represent. And to me, the the quintessential example of that is Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, which, like, very clearly and in uncompromising terms, should necessarily be read as a condemnation of the the very society that Jefferson was was so uh you know invested in uh the, least- the readings of Jefferson by both sides of the civil war are really really interesting and it's on the one hand he was a supporter of slavery i think more so than a lot of people remember today um, and, and and i mean I, of course and also a a holder of slaves and a rapist and a holder and, of slave yeah. and a rapist and on the other hand all men are created equal at the beginning of the declaration was especially at the time, even today, but especially at the time, like incredibly radical, beyond radical. And the the Southerners in the early, you know, throughout the 19th century, writing about the founding, pretty much always left the Declaration out for that reason. Exactly, exactly. The Declaration of Independence is a profoundly uh, radical and uh, liberal, or I guess progressive, you could say. No, right? no, I would say liberal. I would say like like liberal in, in a real sort of 18th and 19th century view of the term. Uh, obviously, liberalism fragmented, but... Yeah, I think liberal, but I do also think liberal like for today too, like our conception of liberal versus conservative, right? It is a, uh, it, it, it is a sort of liberal conception of... Uh, of human rights. I bring up Jefferson because I think that it's, I think that you can, like, it is both true that it's like, I I am not interested in putting up statues of Jefferson, and I'm not interested in sort of the, the great man theory of history there about Jefferson, but that doesn't mean that I think that we should not the world bestriding individual in the Hegelian sense. <laughs> right. That that doesn't mean that we should be like, well, and everything he did was bad and we should just uh, on you know get rid of him from history. No, I think he did a lot of stuff that we should look back on not only as good, but also as potentially the antidote to the very evils that he represented. There's no there or there are few stronger documents that I can think of to condemn the, the institution of slavery than the Declaration of Independence, which he himself wrote. So, all that's to say, Tolkien was a racist. Uh, I think we can say that pretty uh, confidently. 
and uh, but we also do a podcast about Tolkien, and uh, we think that despite the the racism, the uh, offensive, and um, it's just outdated. Not that they were ever, you know, acceptable, but outdated uh, ways that he portrays other people in his in his work. I think that there is still a a great wealth of good stuff in his uh, in his work, um, which is what I think that uh, we focus on on this podcast. But I think that this is a a framework that I really want to continue applying in the future. Uh, I want to talk more about this. We can you know return to this after we've even uh, maybe done a little bit more digging on some other connections we might draw because there there is so much here that I mean we did two episodes and I feel like we still could do one more. Anyway though, I know Sam that uh you probably got to get going. You got a big move in like 8 hours. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh do you have anything any final words before we head out? Not really. I I agree with everything you uh said at the end there. And uh, again, rest in peace to Charles Mills. Yes, indeed. Rest in peace to to Charles Mills. Uh Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. And Sam, thanks, as always, for uh, taking the time out of your your busy move uh, to to talk about this. This was, uh, this was, I think, one of our uh, one of our best discussions about about this stuff. So I, uh, I really appreciate it. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tallarico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tallarico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.